Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the TMV podcast brought to you by The Muslim Vibe. My name is Salim Qasim, I'm the Chief Editor of The Muslim Vibe and your host for this week's podcast. Today, we're going to be looking at moving the discussion around Muslims away from terrorism and towards recognizing and celebrating the richness, diversity and plurality of Muslim cultures. Joining me on this week's podcast is Tufail Chowdhury, who is an Assistant Professor of Human Rights Law at Durham University. His conversations with political activists, community organizers, writers and thinkers have left him with a sense that there are huge shifts happening below the surface as young Muslims are exploring the ideas and identities that will shape this century. He's also the director of MFest, which is the festival of Muslim cultures and ideas taking place in London this April. Before we start, here's a quick message from our sponsor, Wahed Invest. Wahed helps you become a halal investor in minutes. Clients from over 40 states have already started their journey with us. Here's how it works. First, we ask you eight simple questions to recommend a portfolio based on your risk profile. You then select your portfolio and simply sign up online. Your account can be approved in seconds. After you fund your account, we'll place the trades for you. All you have to do then is sit back and monitor your performance. It actually is that easy. Assalamu alaikum Tufail. Wa alaikum salam. How's it going? You alright? I'm very well, thanks. Um, so, I think before we get on to MFest, um, there was something that, that you sent through in your bio which I found very interesting, which was about um, discussions around young people below the surface. Now, what have you kind of seen through your conversations? What have you observed as being the issues and the, the, the changes that are taking place? Sure. Um, so, I guess... This all came back, or this all can be traced back to conversations I had um, shortly after, or in the summer of 2005, when I was doing some work for the European Union, looking at the experiences of Muslim communities across Europe um, and how they experienced the backlash after the um, July bombings. And I remember one one particularly vivid moment was in um, Nice, where they had riots in France, and we went out to the suburbs. Um, of this area of Nice um, and met with a group of young Muslims who were in the basement of this community centre and they talked about their lives, they talked about what was happening, they talked about the ways in which they kind of participated in French life but the thing that really angered them, the thing that was really moving was the number of the young men and women there, young Muslim men and women there whose parents and grandparents had fought for France during the Second World War, mm. had liberated large parts of France, but now felt that the country had completely forgotten yeah. this history of theirs. And I think that really touched me because they, here they were kind of in a country where they were born and brought up in, feeling so excluded, but having this history about themselves, about their lives, about their families that had never been told before. Mm. And they were saying, look, we were the people who liberated France. We were the people who helped get Jews out of France into safety um, into safety and this was a story that wasn't being told and that started that idea of well, what are the other stories that aren't being told and yeah. through my research um, with Muslim communities across Europe it's kind of constantly finding that there are all of these things that Muslims are doing that don't really make it into the public space into the mainstream and trying to sort of create a space where that can happen. And who owns who would you say owns that narrative because if if there is that history for example of, of these, these French Muslims whose uh, grandparents or ancestors fought in the war, um, but those stories aren't getting told. Obviously, they know about it, but who, who would you say, or who do they perceive as being in control of that narrative, and, and who, who is restricting, I guess, that information of being spread out? 
I think partly those stories aren't being told because there isn't there hasn't been the space for them to be able to tell those stories um, to a wider audience. So they know it about themselves, they know mm. within their own communities, but having the platforms, the spaces, the ability to produce the culture, um, whether it's as writers, as producers, as filmmakers. And I think what's exciting now is that you've got um, second and third generation young Muslims across Europe, but in Britain in particular, who are not just going down the traditional routes of being involved in the kind of professions, but are actually going into arts and culture and looking for ways to tell the story about themselves about their lives about um, who they are and about the society that they live in and address some of the questions that they think are interesting and I think one of the things that I was interested in is the extent to which the sort of dominant debate around Muslims has been shaped by discussions either about extremism or terrorism or uh, religious clothing and it's kind of been a restricted debate it's been a very limited debate and so Muslims have either responded to that by kind of providing more data more information that kind of challenges this or responding to the questions that have been asked of them and that in itself is kind of letting your focus be framed by somebody else and I think what's more exciting is that a lot of young Muslims said well actually we want to tell the stories and look at the questions that are interesting to us and those are entirely different questions. It's stuff about artificial intelligence, it's stuff about science fiction, it's stuff about feminism, it's stuff about you know um, theatre. So all of those questions, I think. And that's what I'm interested in kind of creating. Where is the space for Muslims to talk about all of these different things that are of interest to them? So w- would you say that up until now, organisations, or Muslim organisations, uh, are partly responsible for kind of feeding into that, that narrative around terrorism and, and that, that sort of fixation on it? I think responsibility is perhaps quite a strong word. I think they've had to, they've responded to the questions that have been asked of them. And so by responding to the questions that have been asked of them, they have kind of focused on a particular narrative. So they've, you know, it's almost as if, you know, because they've been asked about terrorism and extremism, they've had to respond and talk about terrorism and extremism. And I think it's sort of saying, well, you need to, you may well need to address that question, but what are the other things? What are the stories and the ways in which we want to talk about our own lives? Because just on that note, I've always thought that um, when there is a terrorist attack, like take the Westminster attack that took mm. place, and I actually wrote about this on the Muslim Vibe at the time, but the second that this happens, because the guy was, was brown-skinned and, and had a Muslim, I, I can't remember how much information was available at that point, mm. but... Th- Instantly, you just saw Muslims all over our sort of t- all over the TV sets on ITV, BBC, talking about this issue. When there was no not necessarily any link to um, ISIS or even like Islamic related uh, in inverted commas sort of uh, terrorism, um, and I've always personally felt that that kind of feeds into this narrative around like whenever they're talking about terrorism, you see brown faces or you see Muslims on sofas talking about it. And I think that, personally, that's something we need to move away from. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think what I'd say is that we need to broaden out into the things that we speak about. So it's not that we shouldn't speak about this. Yeah. It's just that this isn't the only thing that we should we be should speaking speak. about. And the but, problem but we have is that's that... That's the only time we get the opportunity. Exactly. That's the, that seems to be the only time that we get heard or we get a platform. Whereas where are the Muslims talking about films, about theatre, about culture, about philosophy, about education, about banking, and all of these other issues mm. that they all have opinions on, they have views on. So I think it's saying Muslims, just like everybody else, have views, experiences, expertise in all of these different areas, yeah. um, yet the only time their expertise or their knowledge or their um, experience is um, 
brought into public debate is around these much more narrower set of issues. And I want to broaden out that. And so that's what part of what MFEST is trying to do. Nice segue. I like that. <laughs> so so how, how did um, the idea for MFEST come about? Um, I, I guess, you know, let's start from the beginning. What is MFEST? Okay, so MFEST is a festival of Muslim cultures and ideas. So it's two and a half days at the British Library um, at the end of last weekend of April. And it's basically creating a space in which writers, artists, performers, intellectuals, academics, researchers, activists can have conversations um, talking about the issues that are of interest to them. And we've tried to make it as broad and inclusive and as wide ranging as possible. So we've got everything from, you know, kind of acclaimed novelists like Kamala Shamsi and Alif Shafak talking through to um, sessions on Muslim activism and on sci-fi and, you know, poetry, artificial intelligence, all sorts of different issues. And all of, all of these issues are of interest to Muslims. And so they should have space in which they can discuss these issues. But also it's a way in which uh, people who are interested more generally about these issues can come and engage and talk to each other. So it's a space for both Muslims and non-Muslim to engage. Thinking about something like artificial intelligence, um, maybe it might be that I've been conditioned in this way, but I feel that areas like that are areas of expertise where being whatever religion you are doesn't necessarily correlate with your existing in that field. Um, so what purpose do you think it serves bringing that conversation around an issue like um uh, artificial intelligence and framing it within a, a Muslim environment? Well, I guess one way is it, it explores those bigger issues. So we've our session on um, artificial intelligence is called Sheikh Google um, and, it's, and it's really a way into the discussion about how knowledge and understanding yeah. is being shaped by algorithms. Um, so whenever so knowledge and understanding of Islam, of Muslims, of, of everything else as well, is shaped by the algorithms that underpin Google. And there's a huge kind of literature and discussion about, well, these algorithms aren't um, neutral. They also reinforce um, stereotypes. They, they can reinforce um, prejudices and biases that exist in society. Yeah. And yet these algorithms play an incredibly powerful role because most people, when they're searching for something, wanting to know something, will put it into Google. And so Google becomes the gatekeeper of all of that knowledge. So mm. what people want to know about Muslims, they put it into Google. And so if you if you put Muslims into Google images and see what are the first set of images that, that come up, that's Google shaping and deciding what we know and what we don't know. And that's a huge and powerful tool that a you know, private corporation has. And so I think it's saying, well, you know, we should, as, as concerned citizens, we should be able to discuss these issues. We should be able to think about what are the implications of big data, of um, algorithms, of artificial intelligence on the way that our identity and our being is being shaped and will be shaped for the rest of this century. That's a good answer. I like that. Very good. Uh, I mean, when is that session? That sounds really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the it's on the Sunday afternoon. So we've got you know we've got Ziauddin Sardar speaking there. We've yeah. got um, Sarah Savant from the Aga Khan University who's done research on um, using algorithms to kind of identify religious texts over over the centuries to kind of so it's it's looking at all sorts of ways. I and mean, we've got another one which is along similar lines, looking at um, pre-crime and surveillance and big data. So minority report. Minority report is the example. When you, when you say pre-crime, that's yeah, that's exactly absolutely. What comes no, to my Tom, head. Tom Cruise and Minority Report, but you know there there are now big projects 
on predictive policing. Yeah. And and so you know, Cardiff University has a huge project about can they identify hate crime mm. where, where it's likely to occur using wow. um, people's social media posts. Yeah. And so that you know, there's potential for good stuff to happen, but there's also real issues and concerns about um, privacy, about human rights, about yeah, freedom of yeah, expression. Yeah. So we've got you know, Martha Spurrier, the director of Liberty, speaking there alongside um, Ben Hayes from State Watch. So it'll be a really interesting debate. That's fascinating. Did you did you read oh, or did you see the the Cambridge Analytica um, Channel Four program? I've, I've read the Guardian reports. How okay. the Channel 4 program? So, yeah. so on the Channel 4 documentary about it, um, they say something that actually scared me a little bit, where mm. basically they've developed um, through Facebook insights, solely through you know looking at Facebook, they're, they're able to predict human behavior better than humans. Mm-hmm. So your friends and family can't predict you as well as Facebook can. And that's really scary. So, so when you talk about pre-crime, first... When I said my narrative, I was thinking we're living in some sci-fi age, it's not going to happen. Then I realised actually, tying in this whole Cambridge Analytica scandal, that there is very real potential to be able to to do this, which is scary. Yeah, it's scary, but at the same time, I think there's a real debate that needs to happen about what we do with this technology, how it can be used. There are researchers talking about how, for example, they can predict areas where there's likely to be um, ethnic cleansing or genocide based upon conversations the language, and, the language oh, that's wow. being used because there's certain languages that's used that gets ramped up so, and increases ethnic yeah. tensions and then they can use that as a way of intervening to um, sort of challenge that so I think you know it's, it's so sort of saying well these are some of the good things that can happen but then there's some really scary stuff that can happen yeah, as well yeah, so yeah. how do we navigate between saying well we could stop hate crime mm. or we could reduce hate crime but on the other hand we can create these huge areas of pre-crime and uh, predictive policing that that have implications for privacy, for human rights and for freedom of expression. That's fascinating. So I'm, I'm definitely going to be there. I, I'll, I'll get the data for you after this. That, that sounds... You should be on the panel as well. I think you, you seem like uh, you've got some good ideas in this. Um, okay, so I, I understand what MFEST is. Yeah. Um, how did a human rights lawyer, teacher in human rights law, Human rights lecturer. Lecturer. Yeah. How, how did you decide that? All right, I'm gonna now set this up all on the side because I think this is really important. Um, I, I think a, a huge part of it is through. So th- this is a project supported by the Aziz Foundation, and so as part of my work for the last two years, I've been working on the policy and research work at the Aziz Foundation. So really, that was one of the ideas because the foundation has an arts and culture mm. um, program, and they wanted to think about what are the kinds of things they could do within the arts and culture program. So one of my suggestions, um, not thinking that I would be... And now you're spearheading. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we should do this thing. Um, and then suddenly, before you know it, I'm I'm the director of the, uh, of, of the festival. The <laughs> Never have the good ideas. That's exactly what happens. We came up with the idea for the Muslim vibe, now we've had to run it. Like, exactly. Yeah, I'll, I'll know to keep my mouth shut. Next yeah, time. <laughs> just write it down somewhere. Yeah. Don't tell anyone. Um, and now, now, with regards to uh, the actual outcomes, so you've briefly talked about the different areas. Um, but given you know, right now in the UK, that there's there's such a huge. I mean, take London for example. There's such a huge diversity in the city, one of the most diverse capitals I think mm-hmm. in the world. Um, and you've got so many different Muslim identities and you're going to kind of showcase and have people from different backgrounds and, and whatever speaking and also attending. 
What are you hoping that people take away from the festival, both Muslims and non-Muslims? What's the aim? The first aim, I guess, is that people enjoy the festival, that they actually come there, they have a good time, they learn, they interact, we have workshops, so they can do kind of hands-on interaction in different types of workshops, but then they get to kind of understand the full breadth and diversity of the different ways in which Muslims are engaged in art and culture and uh, politics and all of those kinds of things, to see actually this is a community that is hugely diverse, that has, you know, ideas, views on all sorts of different things and that there's there's new and emerging um, artists, writers, poets coming up so that's one of the most exciting things is that we're creating a space in which we can showcase um, young artists, young poets, young writers yeah. as well as more established um, you know, uh, experts or more established writers and artists in their field. And, and how, how do you intend to ensure that this isn't just a flash in the pan? Because obviously it's an event yeah. so, and it's quite localised as well mm-hmm. to London so how are we able, because obviously if the aim is to um, start shifting the conversation away from the usual of terrorism and w- whatever else, then what's the strategy there? So we're hoping that this is, well, that this will be the first of the annual MFES festival. So we want to come back again next year to have MFES again. Yeah. But in between the annual festivals, the kind of core um, two and a half, three day festivals, um, we're looking for opportunities to have MFest events either at other festivals or with other partners, both in London but also outside of London. So to take MFest uh, beyond London into Muslim communities, whether it's in you know, the West Midlands, the North, the Northwest, um, mm. Scotland, so we can have a much more rich discussion amongst Muslims who have very different experiences to yeah. those in London. And what's been the feedback so far from people about it? Um, really positive. I mean, re- really, really good. We've had great feedback from people both on social media. Um, obviously, we've had people buying tickets, which is great. Um, but also, we've had really good coverage in in the press. And I think, as somebody who's involved in organising the festival, until you release the, until you have that launch date and release date, you don't really know whether this is just an idea that you you think is really exciting, yeah. really good, but nobody else will ever be interested in. And so, once you've kind of once that release has happened, it was. It was, it, was, it was wonderful to see so many people kind of engaging, really liking the festival, saying, you know, um, what, wanting to come to the festival. Um, we, we've had good coverage both in the trade press, things like the bookseller, national press, even the Mail Online, um, Metro, uh, <laughs> Evening Standard, but also international press as well. Yeah. So we've had quite a bit of uh, press coverage for this, which, is, which has been great. Is there anything like this actually around the world that takes place anywhere else? I'm sure there may well be. I'm not. I'm not aware of it. I'm okay. Not, I'm, not, I'm sure there must be. Because it's always interesting that, like, I've from what I've seen at least, that London um, is a hub in some regards, but then at the same time, often there's stuff going on elsewhere that we're just completely unaware Absolutely, of. Absolutely, yeah. Um, like I, I went to America um, last year, and just being able to visit a couple of cities and and see what the kind of Muslim experience is out there. Mm. Like, we almost live in a bubble in London. And it's nice, because I think a lot does happen in London. A lot of people look towards London for kind of um, what's happening, what the trends are, what the kind of future holds. But, um, so, yeah. yeah so I was saying, one of the things that, that's been interesting, particularly in the, in the area that we're focused on in terms of literature and publishing, has been the emergence of new publishers who who are catering towards a more diverse ethnically and religiously diverse audience and i think mm. they're recognizing that demographic shift that's happening um so you've had um individuals kind of setting up new publishing but um 
organisations that are looking to um, publish books that reflect the multicultural and ethnic diversity in in both the UK and elsewhere, and so what one of the what one of the, and, and the area that's happening most in is young adult fiction. And I think that re- reflects the demographics. So mm. One of the um, main publishers in the world, Simon and Schuster, have actually set up their own sort of Muslim imprint, mm. Salam Reads, um, targeted at young adult fiction towards Muslims. Yeah. So we've got um, SKL, who's a Canadian writer, um, coming to speak about you know her book, Saints and Misfits. But again, I think that's, that's an interesting trend mm. that you have publishers, particularly those who are working on young adult fiction, kind of aiming towards a market they know is growing and is there of yeah. young Muslims who are looking for books where their experiences, their are lives are reflected in the stories wow. that are told. And uh, not, not, to t- not to try and be a downer here, but... <laughs> With with these kinds of things and these initiatives, what I've um, what I've seen is that often we we end up kind of serving <coughs> our base and preaching to the choir. So kind of you know the, the non-Muslims that would come to something like this would already be quite left-leaning and quite open to multiculturalism, not David Cameron multiculturalism, you know, true <laughs> multiculturalism. Um, and an embracing of faith and diversity and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, how do you ensure that we go beyond, or do you think it's possible to go beyond just that? I, I, I guess I think it is possible. I'm not sure if one festival in itself is going to do that. I think this is... But I think, I guess one of the ways that we try to do that is to have... Um, that range of speakers and range of panels and range of discussions that appeal not just to Muslims but to a broader audience that brings them together. Um, so one of the other examples that we have is um, Akram Khan, who's sort of not that well known in the Muslim community, but it, in the world of international choreography, he's really one of the biggest stellar stars. Um, he he was involved in the choreography for the twenty twelve Olympics. He's worked with a huge number of um, um, artists and. Um, others in terms of doing 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 choreography um and he's he's retiring this year um after his final set of performances at Sadler's Wells and so he's doing an in the conversation um reflecting back on his career now he's you know British Bangladeshi 40 something but one of the biggest names in international modern contemporary choreography and dance um and I think he'll he'll attract an audience that's you know, quite different from the audience that you would get to at a at a Muslim festival, as mm. well as hopefully you know getting lots of Muslims to realise actually there's an incredible guy. I mean, one of his um, most notable performances was called Desh, which was a sort of uh, one man performance reflecting back on his journey to Bangladesh. Um, so that's you know that those kinds of I think bringing those kinds of audiences together yeah. will, is is going to be really interesting. No, that that does actually sound uh, very interesting, and, and I obviously I hope it's a, a huge success. Now, on a personal level, who are you most excited about? Because I, I I've seen there's a there's a whole host of people that you're that you've got speaking and performing and and talking. Um, but who who are you most excited about um, listening to or or? Watching their performance or whatever. Sure, and um, that I mean that's that's really. Yeah, so, sorry to do this, today, but <laughs> that, that's really difficult because obviously I mean I'm excited about all of them. One of the things that I'm uh, that I'm kind of realizing is that because some of the sessions are in parallel, I won't be able to go to all of them. So I'm kind of cut between having to make choices. But I think among the highlights for me, um, mostly lit live, who are a 
group of young, um, three young um, people from London who talk about literature and culture and arts in a really refreshing way. Um, and they're, they're kind of they're doing something similar to us. They're recording their podcast, mostly lit, obviously lit live as a podcast. They're recording their podcast as part of one of our sessions. So that, that'll be really exciting because I enjoy listening to their podcast. I've never seen them live. Nice. So that'll be great. And then, you know, Akram Khan that I mentioned um, would be, you know, it's going to be an incredible um, kind of conversation to have somebody who's now kind of about to retire, reflecting back on an incredible career. Yeah. Um, and then the poets that we have. Um, so the poetry evening, the spoken word stuff, I'm really looking forward to as well. Nice. And um, where can people find out more about Emfest? Uh, they can go to our website, www.emfest.org. Um, and you can buy tickets and sign up there. Yep, and... they can buy tickets, sign up there. See a full um, list and schedule all of yeah, that. Yeah, and so we're also, all, the, all the tickets are on Eventbrite. So okay. just put in um, MFES, Festival of Muslim Cultures and Ideas, and you can buy um, a festival pass uh, for £35 that gives you access to everything for the two and a half days, um, or individual day passes, uh, or tickets just to individual events. And we've tried to, again, to make it as inclusive and as accessible as possible, we've tried to keep um, ticket prices as low as possible. So, you know, tickets for individual events are £5. Um, the day pass is £20 so hopefully it's affordable and that we'll get as many people coming people who have particularly people who, who wouldn't normally go to something like this I think yeah. we'd really like to get people who wouldn't otherwise go to a arts and culture literature festival to really come along to this and mm. engage and, um, and and come to the British Library and feel that this is I think part of having it at the British Library is to say well this is a space that should also be one that Muslims feel comfortable in because this is part of the cultural institution and the spaces that we have in this country that's brilliant. And beyond um, attending and buying tickets, how can people get involved with this movement, let's call it that? Um, at a very practical level, they could um, volunteer. For, <laughs> we need, for volunteers? We're looking for volunteers um, uh, to help out on the day. So if you volunteer, you can, you'll get free... Um, you know, volunteer for half a day, get to see the rest of the, the day for, for free. So definitely get in touch with us um, if you're able, if, if you're interested in volunteering, um, you know, sign up to the newsletter and then give us feedback. I think that's the, the main thing, both on the programme, but also of those who attend to get, because what we want to do is to have an even better festival next year. Of One course, that's, yeah. you know, um, this is the first time we're doing it. So there'll be things that we get wrong, without doubt. There'll be things that we can definitely improve. Um, and but we need people to tell us and to be able to make it even better next time. That's brilliant. I, I mean, I I hope it goes well. I'll try and be there for the um, AI discussion. I think that that does actually sound really really interesting. Um, and yeah, I mean, maybe we can we can do this again afterwards or leading up to the next thing or the next event that you guys have because um, personally, I, I think that you're you're right in that you know if we're looking at terrorism or looking at Muslims it's it's always it's that like link that we can't break and the reason we're, we're unable to break it is because all we do is talk about these things and when it comes to other discussions we exist as I perceive it as Muslims in the workplace or or outside in our fields but we kind of aren't wearing our Muslim tag at all we're just that brown guy that black person that woman wearing a headscarf um, but you know we we kind of have our sort of outward facing front um, and that's why I think that reconciling all of that and bringing it together like this is what's really important being able to kind of um, celebrate 
I guess our diversity and also like all the different areas of interest that we have beyond just the very arbitrary stuff that people think about when we think about Muslims. So yeah, as I said, I, I hope it goes well and um, let's catch up afterwards hopefully. Yeah, we'll hopefully see you there and catch up afterwards. Insham, that sounds good. Um, that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on all our social media channels at The Muslim Vibe. Um, I've been your host, Salim Qasim. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wahad helps you become a halal investor in minutes. Clients from over 40 states have already started their journey with us. Here's how it works. First, we ask you eight simple questions to recommend a portfolio based on your risk profile. You then select your portfolio and simply sign up online. Your account can be approved in seconds. After you fund your account, we'll place the trades for you. All you have to do then is sit back and monitor your performance. It actually is that easy.